Oh yeah, yeah. Girl, my girl Kiyoshi. That's, oh, that's next, next week is going to be an interesting conversation. <laughs> my girl Kiyoshi. All right, let's get through this one, and then we'll then we'll go and we'll watch Kiyoshi be Kiyoshi. We'll try and fill those Andre the Giant shoes. I don't think anyone can. No, no. Water. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe... Aang can save the world. Hello, and welcome to the Pie Show. With your hosts, I'm Colton. And I'm Kelly. And today we're talking about Book 1, Chapter 3, The Southern Air Temple. Ooh. Ooh. That's what you did last week, right, Kelly? Yeah, that's exactly ooh, what I after did. After the title? Mm-hmm. Ooh. I see why. It's very, ooh, it's fun. Yeah. In this episode, Aang returns to his childhood temple, hoping to find evidence that his people still thrive in the region. But he makes a shocking discovery. (gasps) Dun, dun, dun! That's what I kept saying this episode. So, Colton, last episode, there was that whole hope thing that you talked about. Uh, What about the beginning of this episode with, you know, oh, the sun rising behind Aang and everything yet again? Like... I, I couldn't help but think of what you had what you had said about Katara's vision. I don't know. It set a really different tone. Did you get a different vibe from the start of this episode than the first three? Uh, yeah, a bit. I mean, especially with I mean where we left off last week after the second episode. You know, everything felt kind of mostly melancholic, with you know a twinge of silver lining. Mm-hmm. But this week, it's practically the Lion King intro. The sun takes up the majority of the screen. Everything is in these, <laughs> you know, warm morning tones. This is the and start of the journey. It's a fun adventure. Yeah. Kids traveling the world, flying on their bison. I feel like if you had kept the like kind of intro prologue, honestly, they could have potentially started the show from here if they felt like it like this was an interesting start like it maybe this is a great place you could have jumped in like if you didn't catch the first two episodes you could have jumped straight in from this episode and been caught up in a way because they haven't had as they haven't had the big emotional drop yet yeah you know especially with the with the first episode basically being a a two-part special you know that they aired as sort of a short tv movie i think that probably was a conversation they had you know when they were working on this third one of it's effectively a soft second secondary intro to the show yeah yeah i think that's a really really astute point you make thank you you're welcome and 
jumping off of that, I think if this is sort of a soft second intro to the show, that gives us almost a second look at a lot of our character introductions. Mm. I find interesting on a rewatch is that at the beginning, these characters that by, you know, 60 episodes later, we come to know and love at the beginning. There's such kind of a caricature of themselves. Like I love Sokka with his like, I'm just hungry. And he's, you know, the big brother looking for his meat. Katara just so about hope and Aang's a little like bubbly little kid. Like the fact that they start with these broad strokes and the brooding Zuko and the bumbling uncle, they start with Mm -hmm. those broad strokes. And then over time, you get to see the detail. You get to zoom in on the picture of these characters and see the flaws, see the definition, see the sharpness of where their personality is. And so it's really fun to rewatch. And again, just see those, see those caricatures of themselves. Yeah, like the first scene, we have Aang pulling a prank on Sokka, making him think there's something crawling around in his sleeping bag to get him to wake up. Also, again, proving that Aang is not taking this as seriously just yet because Sokka is concerned about, you know, their food for their journey. They have to go from the South Pole to the North Pole. And Aang just burned up all their food, not even understanding that it's food. I don't know how... Katara and Aang would get along without Sokka, like how how they would do the like logical bits in between. Hungry. They'd be so hungry. And probably cold. Honestly, they probably wouldn't think about food until it was time to eat type of thing because they'd be so like wrapped up in studying and, you know, learning on working on bending. And then they'd be like, I'm hungry. We should eat some food. Did you bring food? Did you bring food? Crap. There is hundreds and hundreds of pages of fan fiction in what you just said. Oh, yeah. What do you think of the flashbacks? The flashbacks to, like, we get to see the Southern Air Temple before we see the Southern Air Temple. Right? Am I wrong? With with Aang and Gyatso? Yeah. Oh, I love those moments. I... That, that sort of soft paternal energy mm. that Gyatso has towards Aang is just mwah, I could watch that all day just using his airbending to make perfectly fluffy cakes not even to eat but to throw at people and that we're working on our aim like that you take something that's so important and like if you look at Zuko and, and Uncle militarist, like the militaristic attitude of it like, I'm going to fight and practice these people. And Aang's training was throw this cake in that guy's face. Aim perfectly. You did it. <laughs> I wonder how Zuko would have responded to such training. I think Zuko might have taken to it. I think a younger Zuko may have taken to it. Okay. We can we can argue that more later. But I think I think Zuko and the the Air Nomads would have gotten along. Okay, interesting take. 
Not a take for today, but a take we'll come back to. Oh, God, no, not a take for today. We do not know enough about these characters yet. We do know a bit more about Zuko, though. Yeah. Because he gets a bit of an adversary in this episode. Dun, dun, dun! It is Commander Zhao. In my head, sometimes I call him Captain Zhao, just like out of spite, because he was a captain. (laughs) but now he's commander. And like, I feel like that's something I would do as a person would just be continuing to call him captain to go. I'm sorry, commander. It seems like a petty thing, but I do it. I hate him. I hate him so much. I think he's the worst. I'm like, Oh, this guy. He is the worst. And I think he's so well cast. You know who does his voice? No. Jason Isaacs. That's who it was. Wait. Okay. Now I'm remembering. Wasn't wasn't he cast with like this role in mind? Like he was specifically. They said we want a Jason Isaacs sounding guy, right? And then they said, well, why don't we just have I, him read? I don't know anything about his cast. Like the process of getting him into the show. Maybe I'm All crazy, I but is, I think that's what I think that's. What happened? They're like, we need a Jason Isaacs sounding guy. Why don't we ask Jason Isaacs? <laughs> yeah, you hate him because he's Lucius Malfoy. He's the oh, worst. The worst. Also, I love the up the ante of, hey, remember that bad guy? We're going to give the bad guy a bad guy. Like, layers, man. I love a bad guy's bad guy. You know? Antagonizing the antagonist. Yes. And I think when I was younger, I honestly still did not have sympathy for Zuko yet when I watched it the first time. Like, the first time I was like, ha ha, sucks. I, I very much did not feel bad for him. But I knew this guy was not great, and he would probably be even meaner to Aang. And so I didn't want that. So it it forces you to side with, you know, Zuko early on. After not wanting to for the first two episodes. Do you not want to side with Zuko for the first two episodes? He's the bad guy. Yeah, but he's not like, oh, I'm going to go kill this kid. He's like, I'm going to capture him. Like he, he could be worse. Bad. Kidnapping is a crime. Kidnapping is bad. Murder is worse. Yes. But I didn't know it was a sliding scale. I'm just saying, they give him a backstory in, like, the first episode. You know, I feel for the guy. In the first episode, the first time I watched it, I did not feel for the guy yet. Because I don't... I didn't understand. They still don't tell you fully why he wants. So why he wants the avatar to restore his honor. What does that mean? They don't tell you where he's bringing. They kind of tell you he's bringing the avatar back to the fire nation, but we don't know enough about the fire Lord, AKA the big bad to know his relationship with him we really don't understand it's not until this episode that we start to understand some of the relationship he has with the fire lord like this is the first episode at least in my mind that i realized that he was in exile like before it's just prince zuko this is the first episode where they really talk about the fact that he's in exile i'm like oh what did he do like 
What did he do to be in exile? Like, okay. But he's trying to get himself back in with the bad guys? Mm, something seems fishy here, and it's not just the Southern Water Tribe. Maybe I like a villain, but I had a, you know, I did not immediately dismiss Zuko from the first episode. I do think that this episode does a lot to develop him, but... Yes. And we can we can get into that more. I just, you know, maybe there was some identifying going on on my end earlier than on yours. Almost certainly. <laughs> Probably. I don't think you did much identifying at all. No. No. You did empathizing at the most. <laughs> at the most. I I was like, mm, no, can't relate. <laughs> which which is fine, but I you know, the first time I watched it, I was also, you know, uh like I don't know. I got to I got to I got to look up how old I was when I watched it. I don't like Commander Zhao, but I like Jason Isaacs for being the best baddie. He plays a good baddie. He a good baddie. Has he ever played a hero? I don't think I've ever seen him play a hero. And that's okay. If you don't want to play a hero, that's okay. No, no, no. I just, you know, that'd be interesting. I don't yeah. know if I would accept it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, she's got a voice for a villain. And a sneer. And a sneer. Commander Zhao. He doesn't take Zuko seriously. How the heck is he going to take a 12-year-old airbender seriously as, like, his enemy? Like, if he doesn't take Zuko seriously, how is he going to handle Aang? Because Aang is decidedly not serious. Aang is the most ridiculous, like adversary for this bad guy. He is the yeah. opposite of everything he is. He's going to handle Aang poorly, that's for sure. <laughs> he will underestimate him even more than Zuko. He's like a net. I don't know. But Aang would just flip through the net. Exactly. Exactly. Net's not going to work. And then catch a butterfly in the net. Exactly. Become friends with it. Another thing about Commander Zhao, I don't know if you notice this, but the map on the back uh, in the background when they're having tea with him. It's the intro map. No, but it's got extras like it has cities on there. Like you see you see Bossing Say and its wall and you see uh, you see some other things, some other little details here and there. And I was like, ooh, that's kind of cool. I'll have to go pause that. I'm a nerd. I was looking at it. <laughs> My eye was drawn to it. I but remember seeing Boss Sing Say, but don't we see Boss Sing Say in, in the intro map? I didn't think so. I think we just see the outline of like of, of the nations. We don't see any mm. detail like topographical. Mm. I just like I so can see the circle of the wall. Mm on top of that map like, i could be wrong i don't wrong. know if my like my brain puts it in when it's not there i could be wrong that's entirely possible yeah, i could as well so we get to the southern air temple 
We get to the Southern Air Temple. We finally find ourselves and Aang and the group somewhere where we can figure out what's been going on. Because as far as Aang is concerned, everything is fine. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. But Katara and Sokka know that, well, they don't know any airbenders. When Sokka says you can't protect him forever, that hit me hard. Like, Sokka got up there and was playing airball with this kid and getting his, like, butt beat. And he was like, he was like, if this makes him feel better, because they know what's coming. Sadness. Sadness is coming. How do you tell someone about genocide a hundred years later? A Katara tale. Yeah. I I don't know how you would approach that conversation of you are the last of your kind. I mean, to a degree, they've already had it. They've been hinting at it. But they have not said it, and Aang keeps finding ex- excuses, any excuse or explanation as to why airbenders have, you know, just magically disappeared. A secret, it's not magic, it was bending. I know that was a dark joke. That was a very dark joke. It was joke. a very dark joke, but... we've been saying it for the past two episodes and I had to say it again because this is is really dark for a kid's show. When do you think like the moment is where Aang like where it hits him? Where he accepts that that it's that there are no more airbenders? Yeah. Do you think do you think he accepted it before they got to the temple? Like, do you think he even maybe not? He clearly didn't accept that, you know, they were all gone and he was the last one early on. But Mm -hmm. do you think he was letting in any doubt, any fear on their way to the temple? Or was do you think he really just sort of like blocked out? what Katara and Sokka were hinting at and was genuinely going in with the happy face that we saw him put on. I think there was some strong denial on his end. And there were little hints here and there that tried to, you know, get his attention. I think one of them for me was when he was like, that should be, you know, and this is where the bison stayed. Why are there... Why are there none there? He, that was unnerving to him. The quiet of everything was unnerving to him, but he kept pushing it off, pushing it off, pushing it off. And even entering the air temple and seeing the avatar statues, I think he still had hope that they were still alive somewhere. Maybe not there, but they just moved. They had just anything. I think it's not until he sees Gyatsu in the room of firebender bones that he understands what happened here. 
I think that yeah. is finally because he can't fathom it. He's 12 years old. He can't fathom. He doesn't even eat meat. He doesn't even eat meat because it's 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 not right to kill an to kill an animal. So how could anybody first of all take the life of someone else for any reason, let alone no reason, and then take the life of an entire people, especially a people such as the airbenders who were peaceful who didn't have a military who didn't you know who kept to themselves they were on this floating island away from everyone else i don't think he could even comprehend that it was a possibility and especially he hasn't seen the atrocities of war that have been happening over the past 100 years whereas katara and saka have lived it firsthand so the moment and another thing is that I think it also would have been hard for him to accept if he did not see that it was Giazzo who was the one who was in that room. If it was any other airbender, I think he may have still held up hope. But the fact that it was someone he knew and loved and cared about and could recognize even in that state, that's what did it. Someone he revered. Yes. Someone who he saw as eternal in a way. That, you know, the, the, the kindest human he, he knew um, and, and cared about. And he saw compassion in him in ways that he didn't even see in others among the airbenders. Giazzo mentions at one point about uh, air, about avatars not being told until they're 16 and kind of mentioning that he did not agree that he was told before 16. So it shows that even in the Airbender Nation, there was a conflict of some kind. And Giazzo chose the kind of compassion for Aang. Yeah. It's a rough episode. It's brutal. It's so brutal to explain genocide in episode three of a children's cartoon. And the fact that I love that the kids who watch it when you when you watch it as a child and, you know, even as you as you watch it as an adult, you can look through Aang's eyes as a child. But as an adult, you can look through Sokka and Katara's. Because early before we even reach the Southern Air Temple, Commander Zhao does a, like, the opposite of show, don't tell, a tell, tell, don't show. He says, all the airbenders are dead. We killed all the airbenders. That's what the Fire Nation did. They say that before they reach the temple. The audience knows this is a doomed mission. That you're not gonna, you're not, we're not, we're not saving anybody this week, guys. And so the adults are, I find myself as an adult looking more through Sokka and Katara's eyes than I would have through Aang's. Because as a kid, like, heck yes, I was, I was hoping there was still like one airbender left or like, you know, a family of airbenders still like making the most of it there. But to see everyone gone, ooh. 
devastating. I think part of what makes the devastation hit so effectively after, you know, like like we keep saying, three episodes in and you feel this moment. And I, I really think that part of what sells that is that really high contrast between everyone is dead. We can't cope with that. Let's play some airball. Oh, yeah. Let's play some airball. Let's. You know what? We're going to put some contrast in this episode because we have to do our cute animal alert. Cue the music. We meet Momo this week. Momo! Momo is my favorite. I am a fan for Momo. I want Momo, Momo. I love Momo. You want Momo, Momo? Yes! Flying lemurs? Oh my gosh, with the cute ears! Oh, I love him! And the him. wacky music? And the wacky music! I love it! I love it so much! Everyone's dead, but we got to chase this funny little monkey. Yes. Cuts the tension from every scene. And it's so great. I So I look at Momo as the Sokka of the animal group. And that's not just because, like, they're both my faves. But it's because Momo cuts the tension with comedy. And that is what Sokka does for the humans. And Momo does it as an animal. And I find it fascinating to watch those moments where, you know, it's this, oh no, the Fire Nation have reached us. Ah, it's a monkey. It's a lemur. <laughs> it's, it's fine. Also, I, I, I note that, you know, Momo is like the Sokka, the animals. Those two pick on each other all the time. They steal each other's food and then they give each other food and... It's precious. Precious. I think it's really clever to take your your way into a deus ex machina and make it just one of the cutest things we get to see all show. Deus ex lemur. Yes. I need more of those in more shows. We need some food. We're hungry. Here's some food the lemur found. The lemur Why? found it. Why? Because the lemur found it. I don't know. <laughs> and you know what? As a viewer, I don't care because the lemur's so cute. That makes the lemur a part of the family. The lemur thought of these people. The lemur's oh. the only one thinking. Exactly. Also, we see a whole bunch of bison, too. We get to see, like, more than just Appa. Oh, in the flashbacks? Cool. Yeah, in the flashbacks, which is pretty cool to see that they are a part of the airbender nation is really fascinating. And we learn more about the lore as it goes on, but to see that the like homes of the sky bison, it's really cool. Yeah. So this is your first rewatch. So have you ever heard of the Gyatso fan theory? No. What's that? Okay. So, 
we come upon the scene of Aang finding Gyatso in the room of firebenders. And there is a few theories about this because you'll see it is just Gyatso and it is a room full of firebender bodies. So he took out this whole room, right? Then why is he there dead? So one of the theories is that he sucked all the air from the room and took them all out together. That is cold. Can't firebend if there's no air. Also can't breathe. But lure as many of them as you can into a room. Take them out that way. It's a sealed room. But if he doesn't have many, like you would see burns on the on his clothing if if he had gone down by fire. And he has almost none. Yes. It's more like decomposition. Yes. But no, because if you're going to do that, mm-hmm. why why not bend the air away from them, but not yourself? I think he thought he could save more people this way. Again, it's also a sealed room. So any air gives them the ability to firebend. Any air left in that room. But take it all out. You take them all out. Okay, but if it's a sealed room, where does the air go? He pushes it all out, closes the door. He pushed it out as the room was being sealed. So if he can do that, then why can't he push himself with the air? He's a monk. Do you think he was focused on saving himself? That's selfish, Colton. If he saved himself, he could maybe save more airbenders. That's selfless. He only needs to save one. But he could have saved more. I, I don't know. I, it's a theory. I'm intrigued I'm by this theory. It out there. I'm not sure I am completely on board with it, but I'm intrigued by it. It is. Either way, Gyatso was a boss because he took out yeah. those firebenders. And that just goes to show, like, you can't underestimate an airbender. Even if he's, you know, throwing fluffy cakes at people. Like, do not underestimate him. He took out multiple soldiers. Could you imagine death by fluffy cake? I hope that's the way I go. That's, like, that's the dream right there. Yeah, fluffy cake. So, one of my favorite drops of, like, lore in this is the Avatar Room. I love the Avatar Room. That temple... Maybe you can explain this to me because I'm confused by the Avatar Room. Okay. Do each of the four nations have an Avatar Room? Yes. Okay. Because it would be weird if it were like just the just the Airbender monks that had an Avatar. Like, and this is our Avatar Room. No, there are multiple places that have that have Avatar Rooms or um, or at least sites dedicated to Avatars, whether it be their their avatar specifically um so that big door with the wind that's like all locked up that you can't unlock unless you're an airbender we see another weird like cgi animation that was a choice it was was a choice weird flex but okay because like cgi like that that 3d you know computer animation back then was not the cheap route like it is today compared to hand-drawn they do not do that often too so i'm gonna like want i'm gonna try and keep track of when they do that but like they do it enough where it's like you i feel like you're showing off and at the time like this was good but it just it's so jarring to the eye Mm, mm. because it's so stylistic like visually stylistically different 
But anyway, yeah. Anyway, the big door avatar room. The big door. So they have another one at another air temple we see. And there is another one in the Fire Nation in which you have to firebend uh, the door to open the door. And that's at Avatar Roku's on, um, I believe it's the Roku's Island or whatever. Um, but there's another temple for Roku. Uh, there are various temples and they actually show that when he goes into the avatar state and there's that, and all the eyes light up in the statues, they show the beacons at the various other temples and dedicated spots to the avatar. So I'll bet, you know, that, uh, statue of Kiyoshi on Kiyoshi Island that we'll, that we'll see next episode. Those, those eyes definitely lit up. Those are, you know, special dedicated spots to avatars where their spirit is strongly remembered. Um, and those are, it's a spiritual element. And so it's a beacon. Now, I have a thought on this. And it comes from mentioning the, from Gyatsu mentioning that they don't tell them until they're 16. Mm-hmm. And that... He's not allowed to see that room until he's older. My thought on this, because he goes in, he, you know, kind of has that connection with Roku. And he, when he taps into the avatar state, the beacon goes off. This, there is some kind of ceremony there to announce the rising of a new avatar. That he triggered. That he triggered. He triggered it. He triggered it unknowingly um, because... The avatar is supposed to have mastered all four elements and be, you know, aware of his avatar spirit and more connected and more understanding of how in touch he is with his past lives. Mm -hmm. And so there's a ceremony to it to let the world know there's a new avatar. Mm. And that a new avatar has risen. Mm. He didn't get to do that. So this is definitely like the... I uh, Like... I think you had asked about, um, you had a question about why do the things light up? I think it's connected to the rising of an avatar. And and the Fire Nation never saw that beacon go off, so they just assumed the airbender avatar never rose. Okay, I have a theory on this, but I'm taking a note to talk about it later. Because there's a point later on in the show where I think it makes more sense to ask the question that I want to ask of you now. Okay. Yeah, I love... They also go into the lore, like, you get to see the pattern of the avatars, which is really cool. And you get to see Roku a little. You see Roku, I think you see the the, uh, surfer dude water bender in the statues as well we see a whole bunch of earthbender avatars on that mural yeah there are so many and to see how far back this avatar thing goes like that whole room and then up on the walls there were still statues and everything that was you know this has been going on forever it's really cool such an expansive world yeah deep in this world. I'm a little confused about this world. Okay. Maybe you can clear it up for me. 
we see in this episode um, some time with Zuko and, and Iroh away from their conflict with the main three. Mm-hmm. They're they're off with Zhao, getting their boat fixed, having tea, having dinner, getting into arguments as you do. As you do. Are they in the Fire Nation for this? I don't think so. They can't be because Zuko's. No. I think it's a, it's an outpost because okay. it's it's a Fire Nation outpost because you know, Katara and Sokka talk about how you know the Water Tribe has really kind of lost that area of the war, and you see it's there's still ice around and everything. So I I believe they're at an outpost. Zhao just has an island somewhere where he can take Fire Nation ships to get repaired and refueled and all that fun stuff. I mean, you would have to if you've got your Navy in that area and you want to yeah, keep and they're and they're keeping that people suppressed and then, you know, other parts of the world. So and if they've eliminated waterbenders from the Southern Water Tribe minus Katara, they don't know about that. They control the waters. And, you know, we haven't seen them, you know, in war, you want to control at least one terrain, you know, so they control the waters against the waterbenders. That's that's huge, huge vantage. Yeah. And there's no one patrolling the skies. No, not it. No. All right. That's that's helpful because everything, every single scene that we see at this, you know, I guess it's a, I'm going to I'm just going to keep calling it the dinner party. <laughs> so I don't know what else to call it, but every, every scene we get at, at this dinner party, it's there's this like red filter over everything. Yes. Which, you know, yeah, Fire Nation motif, but like it makes it's a me brand. It, fe- <laughs> it feels like a choice by the creative team to communicate that, you know, we're in their world now. It's very controlled by the Fire Nation. I felt, you know, this is in comparison to the to the southern air temple this is the war outpost versus the ruins of war this is what happens when the colonizers take over and dominate they paint everything red paint everything their color even if it's not their land it is now their land and then you get to see the destruction left behind the emptiness left behind in the southern air temple and they fill that with a blue color and I think, you know, not just because of the Avatar state, but that void, that cold. Even just the sky. Even just the sky. It's empty. That's what Aang says. He's like, it's empty. It, it, before he even accepts that people are gone. It's empty. It's quiet. Yes. And blue's the perfect color for that. It's sad. Yeah. They do that. But they flash back and forth between the blue and the red so much. I actually had to, I, I had the lights off when I was watching it, but it was just such a like jarring switch. Sometimes I had to turn the lights on. So it wasn't so, it wasn't so intense. Um, They're really like hammering away at the, the dichotomy between these two, you know, I guess basically our A plot and our B plot and yeah. the two worlds that they're taking place in. Yeah. I mean, everything about these groups is they're very much inhabiting the same world, but they're on completely opposite ends of that world. I feel like building the world, what they're doing is they're 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 filling in a puzzle and these are two corners at opposite ends of the table. 
and they'll connect at some point, and then we'll get to see the middle. Once the outline, once the edges are all done, and you can't find any more flat pieces, we're going to get to see the detail in the middle. And these are the two corners at the opposite side. It's going to be yeah. really cool to see them connect. Well, we see we see a bit of that here. Like we see, I think multiple interpretations of like the same thing. Explain. So we have our we have our two groups. Okay. We have, you know, Zuko, Iroh, and, and Zhao, and then we have Katara, Sokka, and Aang. And mm-hmm. both groups in this episode engage in their respective, I guess, sporting events. Mm. So for for our protagonists, you have um, Aang and Sokka playing airball, this airbender mm-hmm. sport. You know, you stand on the pegs, you try and get the ball into the little wicket gate thing. Yeah. And Through it's the all, gate, yeah. Yeah, it's like clever and there's an element of of dexterity to it but there's strategy to it in you Mm -hmm. know trying to bounce the ball around the right way and it's it really seems like as much a game of of you know speed and and mental cleverness as anything else Mm -hmm. but it's completely nonviolent, and it's completely playful yes it is very playful Sokka gets hurt, but he gets hurt because he falls like two feet. Because he's not an airbender. <laughs> he's not an airbender and he falls down a little bit. But he's still trying and he's st- like, he's, he's got a big heart and he's still trying because it'll make Aang feel better. This right. is a game to help. This is a game to help someone feel better. It's a game to help someone feel better. It's a game to build up someone's capability in this, you know. Where is the Fire Nation one? The Fire Nation has a sport that you know teaches you and and develops you as a firebender it's not about your feelings though <laughs> no leave your feelings out of it <laughs> no and it's not a game where you're competing for points on a scoreboard and it's no. not a game where like you have these toy like elements involved mm-hmm. it's just a duel to the death which hey you know Works for some people, I guess. Talk about your characterization and like hammering home the differences between these two sides. One, on the one hand, we have like a fun little game where we're going to play and see who can score Mm -hmm. more. On the other hand, we're going to fight until one of us is dead. Yep. Yep. I, so the Agni Kai, the Agni Kai This is another place where they start to hint at things with Zuko's background. And this is where they first talk about his scar. And can I just go to the to talking about colors for a second of blue and red? And we see the scar on Zuko's face in juxtaposition with Aang's arrow on his head. Like they're carrying it through everywhere. I feel like I'm going to be seeing blue and red and red and blue everywhere. I can already think of the finale and how prevalent it is. I'm sorry to say we have like a year until you can talk about that. I know. I'll keep thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, the finale is a bit off, but yeah, yeah, ways. It's, it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. everywhere. we talk about the fight a bit? We can talk about this fight. I've been dying to talk about this fight. Of I watched course this you fight have. so closely this time. <laughs> <laughs> so much closer right. than I watched it the first time. 
Tell me what you saw. I'm curious because I I knew as I was watching it, I'm like, Colton is living for this. Tell me what you saw. I want to see through your eyes, Colton. So the entire time from before the fight even starts, Iroh in Zuko's corner with like you can metaphoric hands on the shoulders, coaching him, (laughs) reminding him it's all about the basics. It's all about the basics. And I genuinely think that maybe for the first time in the show, Zuko listens to Iroh's advice. Mm. Because if you look at the moves that he's doing against the moves that Zhao is doing, Zuko's motions are so much more simplistic. And we already know that Zuko is probably not the best firebender Mm -hmm. because our introduction to him firebending was being told that, you know, you don't get to go on to the next lesson. Mm -hmm. He's, He's basically being held back for not getting it. And here he is against a career military man on the rise. Last time, you know, he saw Zhao, Zhao was just a captain. Now he's a commander. And no sign of stopping. Captain to commander. You can see the ambition in his eyes. Oof. And he's he is pulling out all the stops, marching forward, stomp and stomp and stomp. Against a teenager. You know, Zuko might be a teenager, but he's also the fire prince. I get the feeling this commander does not like him. I get the feeling <laughs> the commander thinks that he can take Zuko's place if he wins. Yes. Yes, like... No prince, you know, I'll just make my way up there. Yeah, like Like he can Mm. duel his way to the top. Yeah. Which honestly, in the Fire Nation, you might be able to do. Based on what we know of them so far, like we don't know. Yeah, yeah. But Zhao doesn't win. No. Zuko wins. And Zuko wins by spending most of the fight retreating and waiting and deflecting until Zhao makes a single mistake that Zuko can take advantage of, not with his fire bending, mm-hmm. with his physical martial art. He what did kicks I Zhao. <laughs> what did I say during that Sokka Zuko fight? How important it is that Zuko knows the how to break fight. Dance just fight, kick. fight. Yes. The breakdance kick. Yes. Coming in clutch. But also he listens to Iroh when Iroh says attack the root. Like if you, and it wasn't one of the issues that Iroh had with Zuko's firebending in the first place was that he didn't have a strong enough stance. He didn't have a strong stance. He didn't have like not even just his physical stance, his found like his foundational approach. Yeah, so the thing is, when Iroh says attack the root, Zuko understands because he's been making that mistake. He's been off balance. He hasn't had a strong stance. And now that he sees the commander's stance is off, he's going to keep it off. And I think he knows on top of all of that, that, you know, he's had it drilled into him from Iroh so much that Mm -hmm. when you're not balanced, not just physically, but when you're not balanced emotionally, Mm-hmm. you are easier to defeat because your opponent can, you know, get in there. Gotta have that mind game. And make you slip up there. And I don't know about you, but it looks to me like the second that Zhao got tripped, he lost. He completely lost the mental fight. He lost it. Yep. His concentration was broken. His his form was broken. Like, he just, he had no counter because he wasn't prepared. No, some he was gonna larger win that fight. thing here with everyone in the Fire Nation underestimating literally all of their opponents. Maybe it's a Fire Nation thing. Maybe it is. 
I think another interesting thing about the fight is I don't think Zuko realized how much he absorbed from Uncle's teachings because he's like, he, he still wanted to go on to the next lesson. And he didn't realize how much he learned from that lesson he was having. Mm-hmm. And now he gets to put it into practice, you know, and I wonder when he kind of realizes, when do you think he realizes he's learned from uncle? Oh, just in this episode, let's not do the whole arc here, <laughs> but just that the fire, fire bending lesson that Iroh taught him is useful here. I think he, I think he realizes that the lesson is useful. Very early on in the fight when, you know, because he op- he comes out strong mm-hmm. and he comes out the the emotional, forceful presence that he wants to be, that he thinks of himself as. And it is ineffective against Zhao. And he can't Zuko can't maintain that offensive long enough to get Zhao on the ropes, so to speak. Um, he takes, you know, a brief pause that is enough for Zhao to to push Mm-hmm. And to fight back. And I think probably when Zhao flips it back and forces Zuko to be defensive is when he realizes that, oh, crap, I need a new strategy. Mm-hmm. And Iroh just is right there with the, you know, attack the root. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's I don't think there's at this point a larger realization. Mm-hmm. I think the the influence is a lot more subtle right now, for now, at least. I think I might be at the same moment where it, where that whole attack the root situation. I think that, or for me at least, it's after that kick works. It's when he starts going on the offensive and he sees the commander losing it a bit. Oh, that could be. That that's where it sinks in for Zuko of like, this works. He's like, like it was a last ditch effort to do that little kick thing. It's not fire bending. It's just, it's just a kick, but it worked. Yeah. And he goes, huh? Let me continue with that. And it threw and it threw him off. And I think that's where he has that click of my uncle may know what he's talking about here. Also, before this, we've been hearing, you know, we've seen uncle as kind of like this bumbling, you know, old guy just teaching him things. Knocking things over in the dinner party. Yes. But the commander is the one who says, you know, oh, the fire lord's brother and, you know, the revered general Iroh. And I was like, whoa, like you have a lot more credentials than I thought you did. Not just the fuddy-duddy old man. Yeah, drinking tea. I mean, he is drinking tea. He likes his tea. Yeah, he likes his tea, but he can also be, you know, a pretty strong general and he knows his stuff. He knows what he's talking about. This Agni Kai really showed me that Iroh knows what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I have one more thing on Zuko. Tell me your things on Zuko. He continues to not be a killer. Yeah. He continues to not be about defeating his enemies. If he was going to kill anybody. Again, yet again, he beats someone by taking their honor and walking away. If he was going to kill anybody, I would have hoped it was this guy. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He puts the blast next to Zhao's head. Isn't it on the side where he got his scar? Yep. 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 It's And it's just shy. And mm-hmm. I have humiliated you so I don't have to kill you. And it is so effective that Zhao tries to kill him. And I wonder if that's all. It's not just because of his history with Agni Kai's and fighting. 
but also because he's still technically a child. As much as he's been trained to be a soldier, he's still a kid. And taking someone's life is hard. It's a big deal. And so I don't think he's reached that moment, that peak where he's ready to take anybody's life yet. As much as he's been exiled, he's been burned both emotionally and physically. He's not ready to take a life yet. That's fascinating. You never thought of that. No. Huh. He's not ready. No, he's not. But on top of not being ready, he has found a way to be victorious without doing it. Ooh. He has found his own way to win. Ooh. How much of that do you think he picked up from Iroh? That's that's going that's going to be that's it. That's the argument. <laughs> now I'm making you think. Yeah, you're making me think. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, cuz Iroh talks about honor after after the Agni Kai is done. Iroh shows both his strength in uh, physical strength and also his strength and conviction. He's the one who, you know, sees the commander's attack coming at Zuko from behind, stops it physically, and then gives him a stern warning slash speaking to about how you are to conduct yourself and about who is the honorable one walking away from this fight. And... This is, for me at least, it clicked of like where we see Uncle's true colors because we haven't been able to see past the caricature yet until this moment where he speaks up for Zuko. Where he, so he hasn't grabs spoken the much. fireball. Yeah. Just grabs a fireball out of midair. He just grabs it. Like, this is where you see this man is strong. This man has convictions. This man... This is where I felt I saw a philosophy that did not follow among um, nations. It was a philosophy that he has and that's a part of him and that he's kind of imbibing into Zuko. But it doesn't seem like it's something that it doesn't it, it's it's not it's it's his ideal alone, if that it's makes not, sense. It's not the Fire Nation. It's not the Fire Nation it's Iroh. It set Iroh apart from the Fire Nation for me. I don't think it did that for me the first time I watched it, but it definitely mm-hmm. did that for me this time. Yeah. Yeah. You get that. He's different vibe. On a base, you know, like you said, philosophic level, he comes from a different place. Not just because he's joking. He's making jokes and drinking tea and playing games like, you know, he seems kind of out of touch with the war. But then you kind of see when he grabs that fireball and he speaks down to the commander, you see that spark of a general. And that was really cool because before that, you would I, I, I wouldn't think he's a general right there. I'm like, at attention. Yes, sir. <laughs> would not want to mess with him. Katara does what she always does, which is talk saying off a ledge. This is going to be her, her, I think she has an extra bending besides water bending and it's avatar bending. She's just really good at it. Is it avatar bending or is it emotion bending? I'm going to say avatar bending because I don't think it works as well (laughs) on other people. I think it works mainly on Aang. (laughs) 
I think it's an avatar thing that she she can she can reach him in ways that other people can't. And that's really cool to see. It's I found her the way she approached Aang. It looked so similar to the way she approached the iceberg. And she's approached him in that similar manner, like physically each time. And she becomes that lifeline, that tether. They are cosmically linked. She approaches him like she approaches the iceberg. Oh my goodness, I never thought of that. <laughs> it's what you get because when you watch the Because he's so Katang, overcome lover. by his emotions that it's like a part of him is frozen away underneath the Avatar state. And she unfreezes him again. She unfreezes him Time and time again. And, and. Oh, Kelly, 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 Kelly. That's amazing. Let me give you some colors. The iceberg is blue. The avatar state is blue. And usually a sphere around him sometimes with the air wishes around him. Blue. But yeah, she approaches him with that, with that caution and that care um, as she did the first time. And it's kind of like. Uh, with anxiety, you have a grounding technique in a way, and you remind yourself you're in a safe space. You know, you remind yourself where you are, five things you can see, four things you can touch, you know, all those weird little things. That becomes her. His visual is seeing Katara approach him that way because that is what took him out of that iceberg. Literally the first thing he saw in a hundred years. Mm-hmm. And he says it, he says in like the first episode of, you know, I was frozen for a hundred years. You know, the good thing is I found you like, come on. I'm going to be really curious now to see over the course of the show when she has to pull him back to base. Mm -hmm. If it follows the same visual through line, it's like that one that arm would just forward, be one arm back. Yeah. Yeah. Like Cautious, right arm curious, forward, left arm back. compassionate. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, that is that is good. That is something else right there. <laughs> Next level observation. <laughs> Makes her so powerful. If she can talk down the most powerful being on the planet, like that. In that a way, that her makes the her the most powerful, powerful being on the planet. Yeah, this is Katara's journey, people. Katara's journey. As, I saw it not just as Aang learning that his people are gone, but Katara trying to figure out how to explain that to him. Like that's some of the lens that I saw this episode through because she knows, she knows what happened. How does she tell him? When does she tell him? And how does she deal with, you know, her, her end goal? You know, she believes he can save the world. How does she then turn that into saving the world? Because it could very easily be he finds out about that and he loses it. Yeah. And you lose him and he loses hope. She needs to provide something to keep him going so that they can save the world. You you mentioned in in there that this is like that's Katara's journey. Yes. I want to check in with you because you mentioned last week about wanting to look more and pay more attention to Sokka's journey. Yes. Did you see anything there? Oh, yeah. His moment of deciding that this is that this is family now and saying, I will let anything happen to you. 
that is there we go. He is cemented. He is in it to the end. I think with all the mishaps with the food and people not listening and getting knocked off the air ball like at least seven times, I think he was debating on like, am I really necessary to this journey? And then when he found he could be there for both for not just Aang, but Katara as well, and to be that protector, be the protector he has always wanted to be. But the protector to the most powerful person on the planet, this this is his calling. This I, I think this is officially his calling. So Sokka's calling is to protect Katara, whose calling is to protect and reach out and understand Aang, mm-hmm. whose calling is to save the world. Yeah. What and a I think- mess of a group. <laughs> I think I think at some point why does that work so well? I, I think at some point all of their goal becomes to save the world and not even to protect one another in a way. They mm-hmm. see themselves as tools to save the world mm-hmm. um, more than you know more than beings to protect. But for right now, Sokka's got like two precious children that he needs to take care of who have lost so much but need to learn so much. While himself also being a child. I don't think he understands that yet. He will at some point. And this is also the first time where we see this little, I'm going to say it, I'm going to coin it, Team Avatar. This is the first time where we see Team Avatar away from adults. This is their first on their own episode. Because previously... They dealt with Fire Nation soldiers and they were in the air. They were in the water temple, water, water tribe. So they were around adults. This is the first time you see them adult less. And I think the only person who realizes that there are no adults there is Aang. Mm. I don't think Katara mm. and Sokka realize that there are no adults around because I, I think they like you said last week, they, empty temple. Well, they see themselves as adults in a way that they're yeah. not. Yeah. And I think that plays into a lot of the, the interactions that, you know, they have with each other and with Aang, mm-hmm. which just makes the the tragedy of this episode so much deeper because this episode is just so incredibly tragic. Aang lost everybody, but he gained a family. And I think that was that like this is the found family. They explicitly say it. They do. They do. I love that they say it, though. I think that's so cute. I love that they like hit the nail on the head there. Also, they say the thing. The thing? I am the last airbender. Thank you for listening to The Pie Show. If you like us, please rate and review us on iTunes and any other podcast media you are using. You can find our show notes at thepieshow.fm slash three. Is there anything else that we usually add to the end of this? Uh, boomerang, suck a pow. Boomerang, suck a pow. <laughs> <laughs> This is a little off topic, but it is related to animals and it is about the sky bison. And this is a post show thing, if anything, because in Korra, there are still sky bison. We don't see any sky bison at this temple and Appa's might be the last sky bison. 
How are there more sky bison later? How? How are there more sky bison? How are sky bison born? Well, you know how later on it becomes a plot point that basically Appa leaves a trail of like hair and fur behind him? Are you are you saying that more sky bison budding. grew I'm from I'm saying that? budding. <laughs> you know, I watched a video of one of those like mop dogs swimming, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. all I could think of today was op- was the aquifer <laughs> in the river, um, and so that's what I pictured is like because they show the dog going into the water and the dog coming out of the water, and I pictured that dog coming out of the water as like you know the flop of fur, and then it all of a sudden is a sky bison. <laughs> it's really bizarre, yeah. Yeah, I just needed to get that out here because there are a bunch of sky bison and then we see no sky bison and like they really put themselves into a corner on that. It's budding. I'm telling you the only reasonable explanation. I need to write to somebody and confirm it. 